Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, the novelist Phil Cly, and me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. So, this week for our manifesto, we have Aldous Huxley's essay, Meditation on El Greco. Huxley was an English philosopher and writer. He's best known for his dystopian novel, Brave New World. Uh, this essay is a really wild and brilliant response to the 16th century painter El Greco, a uh, painter from Crete, but who trained in Venetian painting before moving to Rome, and then finally to Toledo, Spain, where he created really stunning and strange works, often with religious themes where elongated figures in jarringly colored robes and landscapes are placed in not quite three-dimensional space. As a work of art to pair with the El Greco, we chose Les Demoiselles de Avignon, a work by a Spanish painter and innovator who considered himself one of El Greco's heirs, Pablo Diego José Francisco de Paula Juan Nepomuceno María de los Remedios Cipriano de la Santísima Trinidad Ruiz y Picasso. The painting was created in 1907, where Picasso portrays five nude women in a proto-Cubist style with flattened perspective and faces reflecting the styles of African and Iberian statues. It was immediately deemed revolutionary and controversial. Before we begin, we'd like to note that Manifesto is sponsored by Fairfield University, a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut, whose mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster them in ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. I also teach there, uh, both in the undergraduate English department and the Master of Fine Arts program, and so we are very pleased to be associated with Fairfield and thank them for their sponsorship. So we've got this essay uh, meditations on El Greco, or is it meditation on El Greco? It might be singular, and um, it is a an Aldous Huxley meditation. Yeah, meditation singular. You, just, you only get one for the present. That's right, and it, it's from this collection, Music at Night, and other essays, including Vulgarity and Literature, um, which I I quite like as a title. And <laughs> no, I think that uh, I think you should read the opening, Phil. I think the opening sets the scene nicely. Oh, Just that fantastic. paragraph is uh, really puts you in the right place for this. The pleasures of ignorance are as great in their way as the pleasures of knowledge. For though the light is good, though it is satisfying to be able to place the things that surround one in the categories of an ordered and comprehensible system, it is also good to find oneself sometimes in the dark. It is pleasant now and then to have to speculate with vague bewilderment about a world which ignorance has reduced to a quantity of mutually irrelevant happenings dotted, like so many unexplored and fantastic islands, on the face of a vast ocean of incomprehension. For me, one of the greatest charms of travel consists in the fact that it offers unique opportunities for indulging in the luxury of ignorance. I am not one of those conscientious travelers who, before they visit a new country, spend weeks mugging up its geology, its economics, its art history, its literature. I prefer, at any rate during my first few visits, to be a thoroughly unintelligent tourist. 
Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, yeah. Mr. Huxley and I have that in common. I don't do any planning before a trip. It would kind of ruin it for me, um, frankly. And I hadn't thought of applying it to art. Consciously, I hadn't thought of applying it to art. But in fact, that's what Huxley is doing here. And after this uh, quite lovely preamble on the virtues of ignorance, he turns his attention to a painting by the... uh, First, first, Jake, why would it ruin it for you? Why would it ruin it for me? Because... um, I don't even know that I think of it in terms of I don't do this because it would ruin it for me. I, I'm not the, – the nature of my excitement for a trip or my interest in a trip is all driven by the desire to just get there initially. Yeah. I don't have any interest in like mapping anything out or or knowing anything about the place beyond the, the absolute bare necessity and, you know, I feel pulled by something to get to the place. And then once I'm there, I feel like the, the discovery of the place by being there is what generates the kind of curiosity that can then develop into reading more. And, you know, because when I get to a city, you know, then like after a few days when I've sort of satisfied that initially, then I always like to get a map of the city and then I'll sit there and like study a map of a city for hours, but not before the trip, only once I've arrived. Yeah, there's a way in which you don't want to be um, moving through the catalog of prepackaged experiences that you're supposed to have, right? There's a sort of like, <laughs> you know, getting to the Louvre and seeing the Mona Lisa and being disappointed that it's smaller than you thought it would be. Right. Um, or the kind of, um, national lampoon European vacation where Chevy chase is going through Rome and he sees the Colosseum and nods to himself and checks Colosseum off of the list. Right. <laughs> and then right. On. there's a great essay by James K Smith in the recent, um, image journal, which is a really wonderful journal where he talks about, going to Florence and being bored with the Renaissance, like all these images that he'd already sort of imbibed before. This is not how I feel about them, but anyway. And then he, he has this experience with an artist that he was not familiar with at all. Right. And, uh, Paolini, he, 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 unconsciously, I think I came to Florence to prove something to be in the know, to collect my own encounter with the masters arriving as a learned devotee. But what I found here in the Museo Novecentro is something other than devotion. It's the joy of disruption, a learned ignorance, a willingness to let go of the penchant to master the masters and instead commune with an artist who is as perplexed and dazzled by the world as I am. And that's sort of like having the the, the kind of joy of not having a sort of mastery where you can categorize and pin something mm-hmm. uh, is is not just important to you know, the experience of travel, but actually the, the experience of art, which can sort of be ruined in a way by, by, by too much pre-digestion. Yeah. And I mean, it's certainly the too much um, mastery kills pleasure, right? Like uh, yeah. that kind of mastery is uh, just anathema to the actual experience of joy in the work. Um, so in this case, 
Huxley is talking about a painting by El Greco. The Dream um, of Philip II. Well, it has two names. So he refers to it um, uh, by that name, but it's also known as the Adoration of the Name of Jesus, which I believe was the name I saw it under. I saw this painting. I don't know if we've discussed this, but I saw this quite recently when I was in Basel. Um, and I saw it at an exhibit of El Greco and Picasso. I forget the exact name of the exhibit, but it was at the Art Museum in Basel. Um, and it was sort of not just tracing El Greco's influence on Picasso, but the, you know, I think what they referred to in the, the museum program is a, a dialectical um, nature of the relationship between their work. But so the preamble on ignorance, right, is what Huxley brings to this painting. And it is a painting of clear religious significance um, with Philip the king kneeling in the front, surrounded by religious figures of various sorts. And, uh, you know, there, there are earthly religious figures sort of surrounding him and to his left above all of them is a scene of, uh, the heavens and of clear kind of, um, the radiant energies of the heavens. And then to, to Philip's right at the bottom of the painting is the gaping mouth of a, I think what you could only call a strangely drawn sort of smudged shadowy whale, um, a, a kind of like nightmarish whale with its, like that's nothing but mouth, like a whale that's just 90% open mouth um, in which is gathered, you know, a, a, a hellish scene sinners and the damned and that's the the sort of jumping off point for huxley is this painting and um, but he doesn't even like it right he's like it's a curious picture i repeat and as a work of art not remarkably good right there are a lot better el grecos but the subject interests me because i do not know what the subject is for this dream of king philip what was it Right. And in the face of so extravagant a fantasy as this of El Gre of Greco's, the pleasures of ignorance are particularly intense. Confronted by the mysterious whale, the undertaker king, the swarming aerial saints and scurrying sinners, I give my fancy license and fairly wallow in the pleasure of bewilderedly not knowing. And yeah, and, and, course, and that's yeah. an understandable reaction. I mean, it's, it doesn't like make sense in any kind of logical narrative way. Yeah. You know, it, it's, and, it's got all of the, all of the symbols crowded into one place, sort of, um, uncomfortably, all of the religious iconography of heaven and of hell and of, uh, kings and, and kneeling and benedictions and animals as the sort of gate to hell. And I, they're all uncomfortably close to one another. And yet there's no, like, uh, no obvious sort of relationship between them that makes sense in terms of what the painting is trying to communicate. You know, it, it, so I, and I don't know that that's, um, uh, 
I don't know that it's obvious because we're so accustomed to seeing paintings of this period in particular that are just stuffed with religious iconography. You almost take it for granted. You know there's something strange about these El Grecos. These El Grecos are so strange, but you can't quite put your finger on it. And then Huxley, with his uh, his useful ignorance, does some of that. Right. And what he goes on to talk about is the way that <laughs> he, says, he, he likes the painting because he thinks all of El Greco's paintings take place in the belly of a whale. Um, that there's a way in which he's not making use of perspective, right? Um, in the way that, you know, a lot of Renaissance artists had had kind of gloried in in perspective as this new tool and (laughs) there's a way which like the colors and the kind of semi-flattened they're not really in a two-dimensional world they're not in a three-dimensional fully three-dimensional world uh creates this intense effect He, he he gives a description of it which is probably worth reading he says from the later pictures we receive the gruesome impression that all uh, the personages, both human and design, divine, have begun to suffer a process of digestion, are being gradually assimilated to their visceral surroundings. Even in the Madrid resurrection, the forms and texture of the naked flesh have assumed a strangely tripe-like aspect. In the case of the nudes in Lacoon and the opening of the seventh seal, this process of assimilation has been carried a good deal further. The landscape gradually peptonized and transformed the unhappy Jonas of, Jonas of Toledo discover to their horror that they themselves are being digested. Their bodies, their arms and legs, their faces, fingers, toes are ceasing to be humanly their own. They are becoming, the process is slow but inexorably sure, part of the universal whale's internal workings. It's lucky for them that El Greco died when he did. 20 years more and the Trinity, the communion of saints, and all the human race would have found themselves reduced to hardly distinguishable excrescences on the surface of a cosmic gut. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. And he makes, uh, I think right before then, he's saying like the only problem formally with this painting or the the problem with this painting in terms of his theory of – El Greco's entire oeuvre is being constructed inside the belly of a whale is that in this particular painting, it's only the sinners who El Greco depicts inside the whale. But in (laughs) fact, the entire universe of El Greco, including God himself, all of it exists inside the whale. And, you know, it's like, it's such a, um, it's a, it shouldn't work as well as it does as a, explanation of the effect of or, or the effect you find in El Greco's work yeah. but it it's kind of perfect actually <laughs> right. perfect I mean like in in describing the visual effect in describing the actual aesthetic quality which is these characters who are like the intestinal quality of it right. you know is so evident down to this sort of weird like almost semi ulcerous color scheme that he uses. And, you know, it's all like churning sort of digestive quality. And then I was thinking like, well, but if you, if it it was true 
then why are El Greco's figures so elongated, right? That doesn't make yeah. sense. They should be cramped. But I was like, oh, it's because they're getting squeezed through <laughs> yeah, weird yeah. whale intestines. <laughs> and that's why they're elongated because of you know, the pressure yeah. of, of whale intestinal tracts and stomach passages. So he, <laughs> he makes this argument. He also sort of like, takes a few shots at like, I think that the, the kind of failures of, of, of like spurious knowledge, right? So, you know, he talks about how the critics say there's no space in his pic pictures because he, you know, the typical art of Byzantium, which was El Greco's spiritual home, was the mosaic, which is innocent of depth. It, um, he goes, a specious explanation whose only defect is that it happens to almost entirely be beside the point, right? Byzantine art is flat, two-dimensional, uh, though there are some uh, that are not... Uh, and El Greco has depth, but little disquieting depth. Byzantine mosaics are perfectly at home, adapted to their environment. El Greco's people are shut up in a world where there is perhaps just room enough to swing a cat, but no more. They are in a prison, and which makes it worse, in a visceral prison, right? Um, and he also dismisses the like, oh, like people say that El Greco had eye trouble. <laughs> and this is the line that I love is, Dostoevsky was not personified epilepsy. Keats was other things beside a simple lump of pulmonary tuberculosis. Men make use of their illnesses at least as much as they are made use of by them. And so, um, you know, it's like this, this little bit of information that prevents you from actually thinking about, right, like this picture is strange and it has a powerful effect on me. And maybe instead of trying to like figure out a way of categorizing and understand, like categorizing it so I can sort of dispense with it, I need to interrogate <laughs> the impact on me, which has to be done through ignorance, right? Um, yeah, 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 right. I, you know the scene in, in Ivan Illich where like he goes to the doctor and the doctor tells him like, oh, well, maybe you have a floating kidney or maybe you have mm. this. And and, he, and he's like, oh, this is a performance. And it's a performance like I do when I'm in court, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, it's a performance of, of, of authority that has nothing to do with what for Ivan Illich is the essential thing, which is like, I'm dying and it's causing me to question every value that I've ever held in my life. And the answer to this is not whether or not it's a floating kidney or a chronic catar or appendicitis. I mean, this is um, sort of the whole theme of uh, a remembrance of things past. Um, in, in the case of Proust, it's not the imminence of death that shocks one into the recognition of reality necessarily. It, it can also be a kind of, you know, sensory trigger like the smell of the Madeline, or it can be the betrayal. It can be a, a lover's betrayal, which in shattering everything known and understandable and predictable about the world, lurches the victim of this betrayal into a suddenly, you know, boundless chaos an overwhelming, terrifying chaos. But, you know, it sounds different than the Illich example, but it's sort of the same in that the ignorance, the, the virtue of the ignorance is that it's just an honest confrontation with reality. Yep. Whereas the entire 
all of our consciousness is arrayed against that in a sense as a kind of armor against yeah. the overwhelming boundlessness of reality and the the means of that armor is these necessarily false shorthands categories by which we believe that we're apprehending something we're apprehending the true nature of something but we're really just like you know slotting it into these kind of facile categories and not to sound too much like jordan peterson <laughs> though I wouldn't call that a bad thing, even though his suits are um, increasingly ridiculous these days. But I remain at heart a Peterson defender. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's you're trying to um, <clears throat> necessarily trying to strike that balance. Too much ignorance obviously has its own uh, has its own problems, but not enough ignorance is right. like. You know, it's like a, a way to not experience art or love for that matter. Well, you know, if I talk to you about Gabriel Marcel working in the Red Cross office during World War One, no. he, the French existentialist uh, philosopher, worked for the Red Cross during World War One. They would get these queries in after, especially after a big battle, like, haven't heard from my son, my husband, whatever. Is he alive? And in order to answer that, he had to assemble a lot of data, right? And information and databases and index cards and whatever. And so, and he would divide the work into sort of problems and mysteries, right? And a problem is something with an answer, right? You, you go through a process and the process delivers a yes or no question, alive or dead. And then you deliver that information to spouse, parents, children. And when you do that, you are no longer in the realm of problems, right? You give them the information and you're in the place of mystery where that piece of information that you are delivering is not self-contained, but it is something that is going to echo out through those human beings' lives, right? And anything, you know, involving love, family, death, right? You're in the presence of mysteries, right? And problems are much more sort of manageable <laughs> and comfortable for us um, to, to deal with. And yet that sort of confrontation with mystery is at the heart of being human, right? And I think that there's a tendency, even with art, I mean, this is like the continual temptation is like to master art, to categorize it, to figure out what it means rather than the only reason that anyone would continue to go back to a work of art that's several hundred years old is because there's something mysterious in there that is not categorized, that works a particular type um, of effect upon the individual human, right? And, and he's from that position of ignorance trying to figure out like what it is that is so beautiful and thrilling and appalling to him uh, about, um, about El Greco, who, who disquiets him. And Huxley ends up saying he's a metaphysician, right? Every artist is, is, is a metaphysician, right? Um, though he has no known school. And El Greco is interested in ecstasy in the non-rational, numinous experiences, right? Out of which is, you know, this Huxley, as a raw material, the reason fashions the gods are the various attributes of God. But 
he thinks El Greco was very different from most of the kind of counter-Renaissance, uh, uh, counter-Reformation artists, the great Baroque folks who are, he, he refers to as mass producers of spirituality. The Jesuits had perfected a simple technique for the fabrication of Orthodox uh, ecstasies. They cheapened an experience. Hitherto accessible only to the spiritual wealthy. And so he's like, you know, other artists have these kind of brightly reassuring heavens, smiling or lacrimose, these always all too human divinities, stage immensities and stage mysteries. Whereas with El Greco, there's the ecstasy and aspiration, but always in the belly of a whale. He's talking all the time about the physiological root of ecstasy, not the spiritual flower, about the primary corporeal facts of numinous experience, not the mental derivatives of them. And so, and this is a very, uh, <laughs> I mean, sort of funny doing this after the, the, um, uh, the against the modernist papal encyclical, right? Um, because this is this is Huxley interested in religious experience as a kind of physiological fact, right? And an interesting and powerful one, the one that, um, you know, Huxley doesn't believe any of the kind of abstractions that get attached to it, but he is interested in that um, visceral experience. Yeah, I don't even know if he's interested in the visceral experience. He's interested in the visceral experience as being the essential quality of El Greco's art. He doesn't, there's not a, a, from what we know about Huxley, we might infer that this would be a subject of interest to him, but the essay itself is much less about the inherent qualities of the physiological, which is a word he uses a lot in this context, or visceral experience of the religious, and more about the fact that the strange sort of unplaceable, eerie, weirdly like evincing perspective, but cramped perspective, intestinal quality of El Greco is in fact El Greco's expression of the essentially corporeal physiological experience of the religious. Now, he doesn't actually spend a lot of time on like the metaphysics of this. He identifies it as being essentially metaphysical, but what does it mean? You might wonder that the essential metaphysics of El Greco involves living inside of a whale. You know, what does it mean that the, the, the visceral quality of the religious for El Greco is this, weird, elongated intestinal thing as opposed to, you know, uh, the ecstasies of St. Teresa or something like that. You know, he's not especially interested, Huxley, I mean, is not especially interested in probing that, but he's very convincing, I think, in showing that this is what's going on in El Greco and it's why El Greco's work manages to be so disquieting and overtly religious at the same time. You know, partly you might say that it's just, it's a apprehension of 
the divine that is also simultaneously a terror at the divine. Like it's, there is a terror in this. These people are, are terrified and they're terrified in a way that's not like, you know, ghastly expression or they're not aghast in the expressions on their face. Like they're terrified in their sinews. They're, they're like the whole world is like this weird in the belly of a whale thing. Um, There's this great bit where he talks about how our ancestors as their language proves did so much of their feeling and thinking with that on the plane of visceral consciousness. Where is thy real and thy strength, the sounding of the bowels and thy mercies toward me? For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Is that frame, my dear son, therefore my bowels are troubled for him, right? The the Bible abounds in such uh, phrases which strike the modern reader as queer, a bit indelicate, even repellent. We're accustomed to thinking of ourselves as thinking entirely with our heads, wrongly, as the physiologists have shown, right? And that is... You know, for me, like that is one of the things that I really like about <laughs> Catholicism, right? Which, you know, especially with with some of the stuff that I think people like to laugh at, like the kind of tradition of sacred objects of varying strangeness from, you know, miraculous, miraculous medals and blessed rosaries to, you know, severed, severed body parts, right? Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sacramental religion, right? Uh, I've already mentioned, I think in the David Jones bit where he says, angels only, no sacrament, beasts only, no sacrament, man, sacrament at every turn in all levels of the profane and sacred in the trivial and the profound, no escape from sacrament. Hmm. And so this intensely spiritual art, it makes sense that it is also intensely visceral, physical. Yeah. Um, it returns you to, um, I, by the way, that was also, I think that might be like, I, I, that was the passage in the piece where it's sort of in the essay where it all came together for me. The one where yeah. he is running through, he has basically a collection of um, lines from the Bible uh, attesting to the experience of God as being in the bowels or, you know, wherever various parts of the body, but it's none of it is numinous. None of it is, uh, you know, uh, like the Aristotelian, whether in the Christian, because Judaism also has a, there is a uh, Aristotelian, you know, Maimonides um, is the the sort of hyper Aristotelian side of, of Judaism. So it exists for us as well, but, this is the the opposite of that. And you realize, like, uh, if you were going to paint characters who experience God in their bowels, what would they look like? They might look a lot like this. This is, um, these people do appear to be, you know, constipated would be, um, I think, like a not inaccurate. Think about the expressions on the faces. I'm not just talking about in this painting. But, yeah. You know, if you're familiar with El Greco, and I, I didn't even mention this, but, you know, El Greco is for basically my entire life been maybe my favorite painter. I mean, certainly one of my favorite painters. Um, and I actually, I, I'll skip ahead for a moment. In common with Picasso, also, I am in a kind of dialectic with El Greco because if you look at my Twitter page, the background on my Twitter page does come from an El Greco. 
So um, the view of Toledo, it's, uh, yeah. you know, one, one of his landscapes, which he's not as well known for. But I do have an El Greco on my Twitter page, sort of like Picasso. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but uh, this, this thing. Why, why is he is, one of your favorites? I, I couldn't tell you, man. I mean, it yeah. truly is like rooted in ignorance. I couldn't tell yeah. you. There was something. I, I don't think that I, it's certainly not like the technique or anything like that. You know, I don't have so fine an appreciation for um, the subtleties of figuration. And um, and I, I'm not, um, I don't think I have like a an especially well-developed eye in that way. So it's, it's purely the kind of visceral experience of it. Excuse me, and to just take one example, which is View of Toledo, which is the one I have is the, the whatever that image is called, the banner image. And I, I use that for Twitter because I've, I've always loved that painting. There is something that I find like simultaneously um, spooky and beautiful and totally mysterious and like unknowable about that painting, which in so many ways is so obvious and representational and is just like, you know, a, a scene you've seen a thousand times before and yet looks like it's belongs to a, 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 a different world or like uh, belongs to this world, but it's like a world inside of this world. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a world inside of this world. And I am just drawn to that. And I really, I do think that Huxley has gotten something here that is uh, profound in the nature of El Greco's work and what makes it so compelling. I have no idea, to Huxley's point about the virtues of ignorance, I have no idea whether El Greco's scholarship would bear this out at all. You know, I have no, there may be, um, there may be, good sturdy evidence showing that this is all nonsense. But um, for me, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know that if you examined it, you know, I, I don't know that the, uh, that the thing that he, I, I don't know that all the metaphysics adds up, but the kind of overall, scheme of like everything occurring inside the belly of a whale. I don't know that it, you can figure out what the whale is necessarily. It's not clear <laughs> yeah. to me what the whale is there. Like, and it's interesting because, you know, of course, you know, how does Jonah end up inside the belly of a whale? He tries to flee God, right? Like it's yeah. not, uh, so, you know, I don't know what the whale is, but it makes sense that everything is taking place inside the belly of the whale. Yeah. So. Yeah. Should we move on to Picasso? Yeah. Yeah, we can move on to Picasso, sure. Some people try to pick up girls and get called assholes. The um, 
the art that that we picked was a work with a French title, which Jake is going to pronounce for us now. Les, dame, les dames well. No, wait, hold on. Les dames well. No, that's not right. How do you say the second word? I don't know. That's not right. Dam dam was swept. Uh, hold on, hold on. Dam was well. Dam was well. Demos well. Demos. I mean, like demos well. Okay. Le demos well de Avignon. The original title was Le Bordel de Avignon. So, so that was the original title, and I I believe that in the this is now me going back a long time, but I believe that the original version of the painting featured um what was it it was something that made it more obvious that it was inside a brothel it was like um oh some more some more direct obvious representation aside from the title because uh, apparently d'avignon in spain there's a street in spain d'avignon that was known as the sort of red light district um, but before it took the form it did, which is this very um, groundbreaking at the time, uh, abstracted, interesting use of perspective and plane in a way I, I'm sure we'll get into. Before it took this form, which was this groundbreaking thing that set the stage for basically everything that came after in modern art, including... Picasso's own cubist period. I think he had earlier versions of this, earlier sketches of this, in which it was more representational. That's mm. my understanding. And it evolved, but that's um, that could be entirely wrong. <laughs> but I, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. It's right. So I picked this in ignorance. Uh, it just felt right because we talked about doing something from the blue period of Picasso where he has these sort of, you know, elongated figures and, and, and it, it feels yeah, where the El Greco influence is more clear in his work is straightforward. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so I just picked this because it, it, it felt right to me. And then apparently he was actually studying a very particular El Greco that he borrowed from directly which has had a variety of titles. It was originally known as Profane Love, which was what he probably would have first... What do you mean? For this painting, he was... Uh... Yes. So ah. there is a... Uh, there's an El Greco painting, uh, which I think is, is most often known as the opening of the fifth seal. And then later... a until like the early 1900s, people thought it was profane love, that it was like El Greco uh, is doing profane and sacred love. And, and, and it was a painting that had been kind of like cut. So it had an odd shape, which Picasso borrowed for his painting. Right. Um, and then it was argued that it was a different thing, that it was actually the opening of the fifth seal. And so this apocalyptic thing and then there were sort of further arguments that actually it's the final resurrection of the elect when picasso probably first encountered it he would have known that it had been known as profane love right hmm. and so 
he took some of the the staging of the figures as well as the overall sort of peculiar shape of the painting from El Greco. And also like, I mean, you know, in terms of something happening in the, in, in the belly of a whale, right? This is a painting that happens in the belly of a whale. Um, it's also in a gut, it's a visceral painting. And there are these women, they stare at you directly. They're sort of strange. You move from a kind of stylized face on the left side to less sort of more normal human drawing yeah, almost, in the middle. Yeah. And then to like sort of women with kind of African mask type faces um, on the right. And it's kind so of, it's five yeah. women, five yeah. nudes in uh, five nudes. Um, some in sort of uh, like somewhat unnatural poses and they are um, prostitutes. The, the, the painting doesn't necessarily make that obvious, but it's, I, I see, I don't get the in the belly of a whale from this. That is not the feel that I get from this painting. It's not as, it doesn't feel um, like pinched and, and squeezed and digested in the same way. With that red red border on the, I mean, there's no space, right? It's flattened in the same way that El Greco. Yeah, yeah, definitely flat. So what I get from that red border is this looks like cave art to me. And that because too, it, yeah. Yeah, because it looks like cave art, it's like the, so look, the the thing, one of the things that they have in it's, common, it's, it's, I, it's I less angular, what you're right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's more angular, right? More angular, but also this is to the point that um, here, I'm going to have to take this off of my wall to read it. But so to um, the point that Huxley makes about there not being a a total lack of perspective in El Greco, but there being Mm -hmm. just enough perspective to be disconcerting. It's like. The the thing in El Greco that makes it uncomfortable to look at is like that he shows that he understands what perspective is, but like won't instantiate it. And so it's like it creates this tension where you feel there should be more room, whereas in a truly two-dimensional work of art, it doesn't feel cramped because there's not an illusion of space in which these things are um, – uh, positioned, you know, you 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 recognize the flatness and therefore don't feel that they're competing for space in the same way. But in El Greco, there's just enough of an illusion for space that you want more. It's like no, this <laughs> this needs to open up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so I don't get that from the Picasso though. From the Picasso, I get like a kind of it. I don't know quite how to explain it actually. And I wish I was more ignorant coming to, you know, I thought when I, when you picked this and I first looked at it, I thought back to the Huxley and I was like, ah, man, I wish I had a nice ignorance to bring to this. And I knew less about it. And I wonder how (laughs) I would feel, but being, you know, um, ruined by my lack of ignorance in a way, what I thought of, in terms of the effect that El Greco produces that I don't feel here 
is what Flannery O'Connor says um, when she's talking about the grotesque in Southern fiction. And I'll, I'll read the part I'm thinking of where she says, Henry James said that Conrad in his fiction did things in the way that took the most doing. I think the writer of grotesque fiction does them in the way that takes the least. Because in his work, distances are so great. He's looking for one image that will connect or combine or embody two points. One is a point in the concrete, and the other is a point not visible to the naked eye, but believed in by him firmly, just as real to him, really, as the one that everybody sees. Now that, to me, there's something of that in El Greco, this sort of... um, like collapse of space and, and, and where like the sacred and the profane are just, you know, collapsing on top of one another in a way in this, I don't get a sense of the sacred or the profane actually. Yeah. You you know, know, there's a, there's a critic who, who argues that um, his name is uh, John Richardson uh, wrote a piece on this painting in the near few books called Picasso's apocalyptic whorehouse. Where, you know, he argues that this is it is a kind of demonic uh, inversion of 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 the opening of the fifth seal, and you know that that um, and, and and that even though you know Picasso was not uh, not devout, uh, he was sort of steeped in the beliefs, imagery, superstitions, and power of the church, right? As uh, Jacqueline Picasso once said, Pablo always claims he is not a believer, but if you ask me, he's more Catholic than the Pope, right? And so like before <clears throat> before he painted this, he'd done a series of horror Madonnas, right? And, uh, and Richardson thinks that he's trying to take the kind of like energy and um, apocalyptic power of the fifth seal, but do it in this kind of uh, more like demonic, right? Uh, uh, fashion, right? That uh, well, does this you know, look demonic too? You know, this is, this is the thing. It doesn't to me. Um, and I think that, you know, perhaps it might be because look, certainly the power of this re- relied on its shock. Right. And I think that, you know, the, the kind of African mask style um, faces on the right were viewed as demonic, uh, and perhaps intended to be mm. demonic when they first came out. He he apparently said to Mal uh, Malraux about this. My first exorcism picture, absolutely, right to Andre Malraux. Yeah. Um. So, but it. I, I mean, I like the painting, <laughs> you know, but I don't think it has yeah. the charge that you know um, that like the the El Greco. Um, has uh, for me is just a. Uh, I'm spellbound by this. I'm yeah. I'm staring at it, and even on a computer screen, I mean, it's hard to look away from it. I mean, it's just absolutely spellbinding. But yeah, it doesn't have the charge. And to be honest with you, go look at El Greco. Um, you know, go look at the painting. Um, opening of the fifth seal, that looks way more demonic to me. 
It you does. Know, I know yeah. that. I know that uh, putatively, that's the pious one, and and it, this is supposed to be sacrilegious. But the El Greco is so much darker and has so much more sort of demonic charge to it. I guess that this has maybe like. I could see now that you say with the masks that maybe that mm-hmm. would indicate like um, th- I could see how the masks would be taken in that way. And also, you know, I guess the, the sort of um, the masks combined with uh, if you know that these are prostitutes, then I guess I can see it, but it just, it doesn't, it doesn't have that charge to me and without knowing what Picasso intended. And I have no idea, you know, the thing you said about his comment to Mel Rowe suggests maybe there's something to that, but it doesn't seem to me just looking at it like it's intended in that way. Yeah. And I, I would think that the background would be, um, I don't know the the way that they're framed and the 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 sort of the the use of like the the planes made of color and shape. Um, it just doesn't uh, doesn't feel like it's trying to express malevolence in any way, or you know the charge of malevolence, or even. To ex- yeah. maybe it's trying to express temptation or like- yeah, I mean I find them kind of sexy, uh, <laughs> you know, like on it, the left. Yeah, the um, yeah. It, it, it's funny. I, I looked up the the Wikipedia entry on this, and it, it Wikipedia tells you each figure is depicted in a disconcertingly confrontational manner, and none is conventionally feminine. The women appear slightly menacing and are rendered with angular and disjointed body shapes. And that's not how I experience it, really. No, me either. Yeah. You know, Matisse called yeah, them yeah. hideous whores. Uh, he hated that. I don't even think they're like the, the I guess, the, the sort of most cubist woman is the woman, well, I don't know who the most cubist, that's a, uh, I guess on the far left, on the borders, uh, yeah. the the left and the right, they're more cubist, and then the two figures in the middle are more conventionally rendered, though with elements of sort of cubism and weird angles. But I don't even feel like their expressions are that menacing. Um, no. They, I mean, if you were thinking about like. Uh, when was this painted? Do we know? It's 1907, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I I imagine if you walked into a brothel in Barcelona and and got five prostitutes and asked them to pose naked and like they had to stand there for a long period of time and like they look like sort of, um, you know, they look mildly annoyed, I guess, but basically like they – are looking at you, especially the two of them in the middle are looking at you yeah. with the kind of a, 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 that's a kind of possessive stare from the two women in the middle. The woman on the left really isn't looking at you at all. And then the two mask women on the right, one of them is looking at you. And I guess that's disconcerting. The, the, the figure in the bottom right with the reddish mask 
And that's disconcerting in part because in this sort of preview of what would become even more uh, disjointed and expressive in the later cubist work, it's not clear which way the face is facing. Yeah. Um, so the mask both appears to be staring directly at you, the viewer of the painting, but also has elements that suggest that it's in profile. And yeah. so the eyes are on the side of the head. And that to me is the most disconcerting element, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I really could stare at the. I mean, have you seen this at uh, yeah, Roma? Yeah, I have. It's incredible. Yeah. You can stare at it forever. I mean, it's just, it's utterly captivating. Um, but it doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't feel charged in the same way. Though it does feel like it has, you know, here's something interesting. So the El Greco to me feels much more charged and I'm more drawn to it. And yet, I actually feel the human presence here more. Right. Like, you know, like even the woman, like the masked woman feels more human to me. In her more pose, recognizably too. human. You can yeah. see somebody hunched down like that. Right, right. Right. No, the bodies are more sort of familiar and recognized. Like the weird cubist mask face bodies somehow feel more realistic <laughs> in a way. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and by the way, the we were talking about how the the blue period is obviously influenced by El Greco, but Picasso later said, "It is true that Cubism is Spanish in origin, and it was I who invented Cubism. We should look for Spanish influence in Cezanne. Observe El Greco's influence on him, a Venetian painter, but he is Cubist in construction." Hmm. And the it's interesting because there's there's something about the <laughs> the way that these sort of exist in you know like in the El Greco and in not quite two dimensional not quite three dimensional space, um, and then the kind of. Uh, unsettling because you're looking at things from different angle um, being so important. But, but yeah, it's at the end of the day, one of the things that's just so powerful about it is just the posing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that as strange as it is that you connect them to, you know, they, they seem to express real attitudes, right? You, and, and, and the bottom right African mask one, which is the most sort of inhuman mask also does to me have a very human expression. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. No, a very human expression, as you point out, a very human pose, even though it makes no sense physiologically or spatially. Um, And her head is on backwards, basically. (laughs) Right, right. I would say that qualifies as part of what makes no sense about it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they all feel... They... Yeah... Some more than others, some of the figures more than others. Yeah, I guess like the lower right mask face is sort of the most present in a way. And um, you feel most seen by, you know, like you feel most seen by. But um, the other thing that's interesting about it is that given the background, which again is sort of 
shapes and color planes, red, white, and blue. And so should not place these women in a room or in a sort of familiar space. And yet to compare it to the El Greco, again, the space they're in even feels more familiar and worldly to me than the space the El Greco figures are in. Um, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it's not disconcerting to me to look at. It's captivating to me to look at, not, not disconcerting. And so I have no idea to what extent that reflects just how accustomed we've all become to the visual language of abstraction and of cubism. And maybe this, you know, maybe this is like a Stravinsky rites of spring kind of thing, right? Where if you were the first to see this, you would have like, you know, pulled out your hair and rioted, but nothing about this makes me want to riot. Do you feel we lose something? Do we lose something in not wanting to riot? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do feel we lose something. Yeah, I feel like that's um I think that's why, you know I, I think that without without making it purely about novelty, that art requires formal invention merely in order to communicate the familiar in ways that allow it to retain its power. So the purpose of artistic invention is not necessarily to express a new truth. It's to find new means of expressing the same truths, or it certainly can be that and is essentially that, if not exclusively that, because our exposure to those truths makes us blind to them. And so we require some shock. We require the shock of the new to yeah. to be able to see them as they are. Yeah, I mean, like the, the power of transgressive art is ultimately parasitic, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's sort of like a point where well, you can't really go any further, right? And it feels exhausted. I mean, I, I felt that um, <laughs> when when like that song WAP, the Cardi B song, was like the the mm. hit of the summer or whatever. Um, and I guess you know it was a hit, so I was probably the only one who who felt that way. It just it just felt so tired to me, right? Like you know, decades after Lil Kim, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. Yeah, I I understand. I mean, the thing about um, the thing about that as a formula in pop music is that like it's not. Uh, it's just that that's the sales technique required to break through in a yeah. way. You know, it's like it's not ultimately or technically. Ultimately, it is quite different. Technically, it's not that different than saying you require some kind of new. Um, aesthetic language in order to, to reach people. In this case, you're not trying to reach people with anything essential or true. You're trying to deliver to them the same pop song 
they've heard a thousand times, but you need to, you know, it just it requires something to break through signal to break through the noise. And, um, they at least found like, it's not that easy anymore. You know, right. it's like what it, my neck, my back came out, what, 20 years ago at this point or something right. like that. Like it's not that easy. anymore. So they figured out how to do it and, um, you know, give them credit for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't like hate the song or offended by it. I just, it just felt sterile to me. Yeah. Ah, because it's totally sterile. It's, uh, <laughs> that's why. I mean, it's completely, it's totally sterile. And um, I would bet you, and I, I know that the data on this goes back and forth, but I, I'm pretty confident it's true that like, the generation that's listening to that song is having less sex than any generation <laughs> um, in modern history is not, you know, it's the, you, now the only debate is really like a, it's a matter of the degree to which that statement is true. But there is an actual sterility yeah. involved in this, you know. Yeah. And I, I think that that might be one of the reasons why when we look at the painting, the Picasso, like so much of the charge that it must have had in 1907 is just not accessible to us. No, but the formal technique is still and it's brilliant. Mar- oh, yeah, and it's absolutely marvelous. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's it's. And so that's what thing. you're left with. Yeah, right. you're left with this thing, and you're like staring at these figures who still exist in some way. They still right. seem somehow alive, and like there's a presence to them. And so yet- why? So then, why is why is it's compelling work of genius painting? But why is why is it not tinged with terror and the El Greco? so many centuries later still is. Why is it not tinged with terror in the same way? I I, I mean, my first instinct was to respond to that by saying something about the difference between what I know of El Greco's motivations as a painter and Picasso's motivations as a painter, but I would rather not do that and try and answer it. It would would disobey the, the pleasures of ignorance. Yeah, I would. Also, I just think it's a more compelling answer if it only speaks to the art without need to reference the artist. And I guess one of the reasons why is that the the figures in the um, Picasso seem to have like some space between them that grants them you know, in their like weird disjointed cubist way, the the background of planes and colors and the sort of the way in which they're re- arranged in relation to each other and in relation to the overall perspective such as it is achieved by the painting doesn't make them feel like they're fighting for space. Whereas if you look at an El Greco, either of the two El Grecos um, we've mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm literally looking at opening of the fifth seal right now, but it would apply to either of them. They, they're just, there doesn't seem to be enough space for everybody. You know, there, there's something like in atmospherically, there's something in the atmosphere in the paintings that's sort of sucking the air out and, 
it's something else is rushing in and there's just there's a uh, a tension in the compression of the form that I feel in the El Greco that I I don't feel in the Picasso. And also I'm looking at opening of the facile again and I'm I'm seeing the ways in which like there's a weird ghostly pallor to some of the figures and then this you know sort of corroded inner gut bacteria brown and red and the the play of those colors is like it, it's making me uncomfortable to look at it right now you know it's so that that as well yeah i mean how would you answer that i think he depicts religious ecstasy in a way that makes you long for it and fear it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly more dramatic in its way, you know, the, so the, like the drama of the Picasso is all. It's, it's, it's in... not, it's not placid happiness, right? Which is what Huxley accuses the, um, most Baroque painters of doing like heaven is, is placid happiness, right? It's more like, mm. you know, joy in the sort of stern Jeffrey Hill sense, right? Which is you know, joy as opposed to enjoyment. It's not, um, a, it's not a, you know, I consumed an experience and it was a pleasant, you know, experience that gets five stars on Yelp. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sure, it's but it's also like it's not even the um it's not even the like overawing almost like um orgasmic terror and religious experience of like a Bernini, which is not mm -hmm. you know high baroque right um but not placid happiness at all is literally you know it's the famous sculpture sculpture Teresa yeah, and and but Saint Teresa being pierced, Saint Teresa is bigger than life, and mm -hmm. sort of um, it's the it's not it's not crowded and and right. cramped and inside a whale in the same way. It doesn't have the same strangeness. Yeah, it doesn't have the same strangeness, which I think has to do with that spatial dimension. It's right. really strongly about, and the colors. I'm looking, I'm realizing, yeah. and they're just such strange sort of choices of colors too. Right. And they're they are really <laughs> the, like the overall effect of them is it's just disconcerting. It's just they don't. Everything is sort of slightly like it's sort of been pitched a bit too much up or a bit too much down. And it's like, it's just off in some way that makes it seem, um, you know, like, like a, a sort of, um, I don't want to say ghoulish because it's not ghoulish necessarily. It's uh, because it's also like vibrant in its way, yeah. right? It's, it's hard to describe, man. It's uh, 
it's hard to describe. I, I, my ignorance is not doing me as, uh, as much of a service <laughs> as I might hope right now. <laughs> but it's powerful. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, may you continue to enjoy the pleasures of ignorance, Jake. I'll do the same. You as well, my friend. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>